What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Too Much Test Podcast. This is episode 10. I am joined with David DiMasquita and Sam Stolt. Uh, you can find David on YouTube, look David DiMasquita, and Instagram, it's dynamite underscore D. And just search Instagram for Sam Stolt. You'll find him on there, and you'll also find him on YouTube. So what's going on, guys? How are you guys doing tonight? Doing freaking awesome. How about you guys? I'm doing amazing right now. May uh, at the end of the night, I may be a first time home buyer. Um, what's going on with you, Pete? Same old stuff. Um, just want to let you guys know we may have an IFBB Pro competitor dropping into this podcast, so you might want to stick around. Should be a pretty good time. We're not guaranteeing anything because technical stuff happens. Um, oh, he's actually ready to join. Let's get. He said the link is not working. Uh, he said an error. Well, you can iron it out. Um, you had just mentioned that you guys came back from a vacation, right? He's driving yeah. right now. So I went to the beautiful city of Miami uh, for a friend's 40th birthday party. Uh, I went to an Airbnb, had a good time. Uh, Miami is crazy expensive for no real reason, uh, if you're ever planning on going there. Um, but <clears throat> so the fun part, last day, we pack up all our stuff, put it in the car, we were going to, uh, this girl booked a drag show slash like brunch where they feed you and these, you know, these people dance around, all that stuff. All good. So I go uh, about halfway through. I forgot something in my car and I go back out to the car and I walk up to the passenger side and I look and I said, there's no way I forgot to, or I forgot to close up this window in Miami. And then I started to notice a little glass. But it was only a little bit of glass. It wasn't as much as I would have expected from a two-door car because they typically have pretty big windows. So it didn't click for me for a second. And then it clicked real hard that someone had smashed in my girl's window. Now, here's where it gets, here's where it gets interesting. So technical difficulties. <laughs> just had a little technical difficulty. Um, but so here's where it gets interesting. So I have a belt that has a knife in the belt buckle. I brought it everywhere. No one's ever, ever figured it out. And it's old and it broke. So I was standing in line to get into the show and the belt broke. And I was like, shit, my pants were all loose. And I was carrying Glock 43 on me, which I do normally. Oh, sorry, guys, my phone's screwing up. But um, so I go out uh, halfway through this show. And I put the gun in the trunk under some other clothes. Now, most of our luggage was in the actual car, which is a really bad idea. I typically remember not to do this, but we were hungover. We were going to brunch. And so I'm looking through the car and I'm like, oh, shit, what did they take? Um, and then I look in the trunk. My gun was still there. Thank God. So these guys got away with my Adderall, some of my girls prescription medicine, some clothes, a curling iron. And these idiots missed one of the bags that had two really expensive watches and a gold necklace. So basically, they got some prescription pills and they missed out on jewelry and a gun. So really good criminals. Screw you, Miami. Uh, but anyway, pretty wild. Oh, man. Did they give you a percentage of the profit from all the drugs they took, though? <laughs> no, no, they did not. They're greedy like Broke that. Broke in. But what's crazy <laughs> was the reason I figured this out, why I didn't see a lot of glass so they didn't smash the window in. So what I believe they did was they put suction cups on the window, smacked it with something like one of those things that can like those emergency things to break the glass. And because it's tinted, it held up stuff together. And then they just yank out the window and throw it under the car. 
So well, as I was talking to the police, I noticed that part of the window was under the car and I pulled it out and it was basically just folded in two pieces, all uh, spider webbed. Oh, does it stop the alarm from going off or something like that? <clears throat> so that I don't know. The alarm was not on when I got to the car. Um, so we don't know if it ever went on or not. But I mean, I think it's just a cleaner way to do it. So they just walk up real quick. Put the suction cups on. Guy smacks it with a thing. They pull it out and slide it under the car. And then at that point, it pretty much looks like they're just standing near a car with the window open. Wow! Wow! I have, I have a um, I have a Tesla, and it has cameras like eight cameras all the way around it. And I used to live in South Carolina before moving down to Florida about ten months ago. And the parking lot. I lived in an apartment complex. So there's a sentry mode. That's your your security system on the car. So it will actually get set off if you trip one of the ultrasonic sensors. Ultrasonic sensor is like a three-foot like perimeter around the car. So if you come within three feet of it, it will start recording, and then it saves it to your, your thumb drive, right? So I like to just look at the footage when I get in the car, see if there's any crazy thing right going on. So I click on the footage, and it was in the middle of the night. Somebody had parked. It was a parking lot, so somebody just parked next to me. I see this girl um, get out of her car. She opens, comes around the car, opens her passenger side door up. She takes her, like, McDonald's bag. She sets it on the ground. Um, and then she goes to like kick it. It doesn't really go anywhere. She shuts her door, gets into the backseat, does something else. And then she's like, apparently notices her McDonald's bag is still on the ground and she just kicks it to the curb. And I was like, what, what, this is why there's always shit in the parking lot. But like, <laughs> not that they didn't bring it in my car or anything, but it reminded me of that story. <laughs> people, people, um, get caught all the time trying to go through and like, um, scratch or key Tesla's because it records along the side of what you're doing. Yeah. I've seen that camera, camera facing backwards. It's pretty cool. So one time my friend was headed back from Buckhead, right? And they were just walking their car. There was a brick of cocaine sitting next to the curb, right near their car, a brick, <laughs> probably a pound, right? Or, or a kilogram. I don't know what a brick is of cocaine, but I assume it's, what thirty to fifty thousand dollars, maybe more? Just kilogram, about fifty three thousand street value. Nothing. Just, just, just get wild guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> Car is broken into. Yeah, okay. <laughs> fifty fifty two thousand twenty five dollars ish. If you had to guess. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yeah, but and I was like, and you didn't take it. <laughs> Like, no, I'm not trying to die. <laughs> so, you what did you guys do? Leave it there? I wasn't with them. I, like, my buddy was just like, he tagged me. He's like, dude, there's literally a brick of cocaine sitting here. I'm like, well, how much money do you want to make? Uh, <laughs> I got to tell one. So, uh, before, when I was younger, I wasn't allowed to date. So, I was homeschooled my whole life. I wasn't allowed to date. So, as soon as I started, uh, like, basically, I got on my own and started dating, all I wanted to do was sleep around. So, I go out to the the club and I had met this girl somewhere previously, but then I saw her at the club and I hadn't like supper with her or anything. So she comes home and I had to work first thing in the morning. So I had two roommates. They obviously in their own rooms forever. Well, I sleep with her. Then I was like, hey, I gotta go fucking, I'd given her a ride. So she didn't have anybody to get home. Um, and <laughs> she texts me like, well, I'm at work. She's like, oh, your, your roommate's charging me $50 to give him a ride. Give me a ride back, whatever. And I was like, oh, sorry. Um, I get home when I'm done from work after being up all night. I just plop into my bed 
And um, I like slide my arm underneath the pillow to like use it as like, um, a, you know, just pillow my hands underneath it. As I do that, I find a bag of cocaine underneath my pillow from her in my bag. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And then she texted me and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Wait, wait. About. So she paid fifty dollars, then lost X amount of dollars in cocaine. Like, how do you not pay attention to your drug stash that you're just like <laughs> randomly leaving at some dude's house that you don't know? Like that is hilarious. Like that's <laughs> random. And I, I just everybody. I was like, dude, you charged her fifty dollars to give you her ride <laughs> home. This was before like Uber was like taking off and stuff like this. This is back in the day. So uh, I had a question um, on a previous episode that somebody had actually asked. Uh, his name was Darren on YouTube. And he wanted to see if we could talk about DECA-only cycles. Um, and he was like, oh, DECA-only, that then you don't have to deal with hair loss. So I wanted to hear what your guys' thoughts are. I'll, I'll just give you an example of someone that I know that did this. And then I'll let David tell us you know, the scientific reason behind it. Um, but I knew a buddy growing up in high school, got into bodybuilding, not like hardcore, but his first cycle ever was DECA only, I think 500 milligrams. I don't, I don't think he planned to do it that way. I think that was just what he was able to get and didn't know any better. And he said that he couldn't get it up for like a month and a half, two months after that cycle. And he said it was the worst thing ever. Just It would not get up no matter what, like full on ED. And I'll let David uh, touch on why that may have happened. You know, like, I'm, I'm not going to dive into DECA too much, but it is a NOR-19. So NOR-19 is a progesterone-based drug, essentially. It's going to affect your prolactin levels, potentially. But estrogen is not something that's talked about with DECA because it doesn't aromatize heavily because of NOR-19, right? Which is true. But what people don't talk about is that it upregulates the production of estrogen via enzyme. So... You upregulate your estrogen, an aromatizer inhibitor can't help you with it if it starts to upregulate. You just have to take less or stop taking it. Um, that's why the guys that get erectile dysfunction with it, they're just better off not to take it. You can't really counteract the side effects of that. And I believe that that's part of the reasons why it happens. Um, now, also, like, it, I don't have lab work on like DECA individually, which is something that I probably need to do at some point in time because the side effects aren't like miserable from DECA. But what I can tell you is DECA by itself, and I've had myself in relative experience with low test, high DECA, and I do perfectly fine, okay? Like perfectly fine. And by high DECA, I mean like 500 or 600 milligrams. I can't remember off the top of my head, but that's that's about the max threshold that I ever go to anyways and stuff. Um, and I was, I was perfectly fine. And then, uh, I actually get harder, leaner, and I actually get better erections with DECA, which a lot of guys do not. Um, it's like polar opposite ends. Now, then I've also done where it was a break. I was, I was, I had a coach that had me do it and he wanted to take a break off of testosterone for a short period of time. And that break on the testosterone, literally within two weeks, I would became clinically depressed I cried during a Disney movie on the way back from home from Seattle on a flight. And I was like, what the, I was like, why can I not like want to stop crying right now watching this movie? And I was taking some aromasin, right? Like, because I knew I had some estrogenic side effects going on. So, so we could start. So, so you're taking DECA only, or you, so you drop tests and you're taking DECA only for the cycle. And this is when you're like, oh my God, this Disney movie is so amazing. And you get emotional. So it was from a blast. Like it was, it was a, it was a longer blast. Um, the longest blast I ever did. I think it was like right around like 
16 weeks or so. And then I, I, the whole ideology was you take a break from the test, then you go back into the test after you're on the DECA for a bit of time to, so the body gets a break, maybe potentially resensitize. Um, now, what ended up happening, and I just realized this entire time we've been muted on this podcast, I think. No, we're not. Um, either way. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, and then you basically resensitize and you add the test back in and you're super sensitive to it and you just do TRT because I had to come off. And what ended up happening was erectile dysfunction, clinical depression, anxiety, um, extremely emotional, but in a depressed sense, not angry, no sense of aggression in the gym. And, you know, when I landed from that flight, when I walked back into my apartment, I loaded a syringe full of testosterone. I injected it. And within two hours, I felt like a man again. I didn't feel 100%, but that's how low my test, what, whatever got low. I don't know what got low on blood. I assume my test like bottomed out. So, um, so question. So, so DECA, from what I've read, DECA does convert to estrogen, but it's like 10 to 20%, depending on what you're looking at. But is, is it actually converting then, or is it through the upregulation? Of, it's upregulation of the production of it. Which is of weird. Like the aromatase enzyme? No, it's not aromatase. It's it's. I ha, I would have to get you the actual like enzyme name of some sort. Um, oh, uh, David is small because he's sitting so far back, looking at me. Blah blah blah. Uh, Sam is quiet when he's talking. Um, it's not muted. It's just inaudible. Okay, whatever. Um, well, so let me let me pull up. The, the, <laughs> wait, wait. I'll turn on my desktop volume. There we go. Fixed. Okay. So either way. Um, yeah, I don't, it doesn't aromatize heavily. It's via another enzyme. And I literally would have to look and you're looking it up right now. You're trying to find it. I don't know if you're going to be able to find it. I know for a fact that, and I, and it, I think it starts with the N I can't remember, but it does affect estrogen levels. It doesn't aromatize though. Like the aromatization is like null and void. It's actually like 10%. I think it's very, very low or 20%. You know, it's uh, interesting while you guys are looking this up and, is I was watching a video by Mark Plummer, and I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with him, but he's a shorter dude from Canada. He's strong as hell. Anyway, he got um, he basically was running a cycle. I mean, it was like test Tren and Deca, and you know Tren and Deca are both 19 nors, which can yeah. help that, can deal with that or increase that prolactin. And he actually attributes more of from that cycle getting gyno because of such high prolactin. Um, but a lot of a lot of people and just the general knowledge think that only estrogen, um, you know, is is able to cause gyno. And I think some of the other research is showing that, you know, prolactin can also throw, you know, can also be included in that as well, because I guess supposedly there are prolactin and estrogen receptors in breast tissue. Um, so for, so you, long story short, you can get bitch tits from a lot of different ways. So it's not just estrogen. Yeah. So and, I, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say uh, testosterone and tr testosterone, Tren and Deca was a really common old school thing that used to be run all the time. And that is something I literally would refuse to do. In fact, I just had a consult earlier where I would have, I advised hard, hard against it um, because it is so much prolactin production that you're getting. I mean, there's only so much prolactin you're going to try to inhibit in progesterone with the B6 or Cabergoline. You still... It's like why why take something that you just don't need? Well, you've got two nineteen ors, right? You got DECA and you got trend. Like why 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 not take one of those off and put on a DHT based compound instead? Uh, and and ba balance it. 
But go ahead. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, right now, I am, this is more of a selfish question. I want to hear both of you guys' thoughts on this. Um, I think most people run personally from my POV and my risk tolerance and my objectives. Most people run far too much trend if they do decide to, to run trend. I've never run it before. Um, I have some, and I am going to be. Allegedly. <laughs> of course, I came from my doctor. Right? Um, so. <laughs> I'm going to be going to 250. I'm already up three or four pounds, five pounds or something since the low point from the, it was probably just the glycogen stores refilling. But I have a theory that you can basically almost eliminate all side effects with trend with a micro dose and then every other week. So for example, say something be like 20 to 50 milligrams week one, week two, nothing. And you can use a different compound week three back to trend in that 20 to 50 milligram territory and, and off and on, off and on like that. So that you don't have that compounding effect because it is so, so incredibly strong and you're, you can, you have negative side effects from the duration, but also the dose and then idiosyncratic risks, right? So we can't really talk about idiosyncratic risk because that's individual, but the time of which somebody does something and then the uh, dose, like the length of which they do it, and then the doses which they do, you can control both of those things, right? So to mitigate both of those risks is do like a micro dose and then also take every other week off. And I'd like to hear what you guys' uh, thoughts are, or if you guys have ever run trend and what you're experience was or if you've ever thought like huh oh, let me try a microscopic dose of trends so i've never run trend trend scares me um i don't think anyone's ever tried what you just said because when people usually when people start trend it's like we're on trend baby there's no way we're just doing it 25 milligrams and then skipping a week we're going to 350 400 every week i mean i don't i, I mean from, from, okay so i from what i've seen a lot of different stuff a lot of scientists and different studies with different compounds, they're finding that microdosing can have some really good effects. Um, one of the things that you may think is crazy that people are using uh, microdosed ketamine for like anxiety, PTSD, you know, same thing with stuff like uh, MDMA, LSD. So, I mean, it's been shown that little, little bits of compounds can have drastic effects on the body and on the brain. So I don't see why something as strong as trend microdosing couldn't work. Now you also have to figure out, you know, and kind of think like, is that compounding effect and it always being your body, one of the reasons why you get what you need to get from trend? Um, or is it, you know, can you microdose it and that little bit will help? So there's, so, there's an echo in the background on your side, David. On my side? Yeah. Or maybe it's on my side. I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry. That was on. That was on my side. I was trying to see the chat in the live, <laughs> and it didn't work. I just played the sound. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Dave, that's your fault. No, definitely my fault. My apologies. Okay, Dave. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on on the microdosing and the microdosing dose, but also microdosing time? Okay. Because so, it's not common, but a lot of shit is not common. Microdosing on mushrooms, phenomenal. I can attest to it. Um, so it, it uh, has been proven to basically clear up depression, open portions of the mind. Microdosing hallucinogenic drugs have shown 
amazing benefactors for depression, cognitive functionality. Um, I even get a sense of focus. Now, maybe I'm taking lower amounts than other people. I don't know. I, I take like a small little minute amount and I get some benefit out of it. And I only do it like two or three days and take a break and then two or three days and take a break. And it just levels you, grounds you a little bit. Um, so I can speak to that one. That's that. And then as far as microdosing with hormones, a little bit different in my eyes, you know, like some people are huge fans of microdosing and they back it up with science and I get it. I understand. I mean, it's more stable when you microdose It's not as much processing for the body at one time. Um, but one of the issues is the scar tissue buildup over time, it, but even though it's bit, you're probably using insulin needles when you're microdosing, the other issue with microdosing is it's almost too perfect of a reality world to live in. Um, the body likes cycles. So when we're putting in drugs, it's all about half-life stability. And even in it with an anthe, if you're shooting it three times a week, that's almost like perfect half-life. It's above perfect. It's at above a peak of what it normally would be if you're doing it twice a week or once a week, like would be prescribed. Um, the Like, again, the body likes cycles. You're technically, in theory, supposed to replicate the cycle of a natural body, which would be an injected testosterone cypionate, injected 14 days later, which is two weeks. Now, the issue is that we know we have estrogen issues with that. So now I'm going to snapshot forward to the trend on the microdosing for a week. Now it depends on the ester. Um, obviously you would want something that's going to be actually affecting your system um, in a short bit of time. So I'm, I'm guessing you'd talk trenase. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Because the half-lives definitely make a difference when Correct. we're talking about this. Trenase, and, I, I mean, and, I would pro- and I would honestly probably do like 10, 10 and 10 or something like very, very small. Okay. So, I'm going to speak from some personal experience here. One with drugs with hormones, we want stability. So microdosing is fine in my eyes. Um, I personally think that I don't want to be a pincushion. So I think three times a week is plenty. Um, Trend usually start to see psychological effects um, from my personal experience after six weeks. um, If if dosages are in lower ranges. Define lower ranges because... Yeah, my POV on things tends to be a little bit different than other people, and I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying when you say so. Lower numbers. intelligent dosages on trend, I believe, are between 100, which would be a clinical dose back in the day, to 200 milligrams, which was still a clinical dose. They actually had a front, I believe, it was a front load protocol with trend and on women, um, and <laughs> it was like 160 ish, 150 ish, 160 ish. For the front load, and then they and it was a very long ester, and then it would go over into seventy six milligrams a week. Um, now hormones are about stability, right? So let's hit on that topic a little bit. You want to keep that stability and the protein synthesis as high as you can for as long as you can with minimal side effects. I think a titration method is probably a better approach. Um, microdosing is still fine, but hundred milligrams a week, uh, you probably should see very bare minimal side effects. Two hundred milligrams a week. I still think you would get go ahead. No, no. I, so I want to push back on that because because right we have there, there's been it's been shown you can like hypercompensate right. So um, you know when you deplete uh, glycogen stores and then you can kind of like supercompensate and you get like oh actually you know hit a PR because I deflated myself and then I fucking was able to expand past that and 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 there's, that's like the first example that comes to my mind. Uh, but there's 
I don't remember where I was looking into this, but I found another example where it actually applied to training, where like taking a certain amount of time off and then going back in and hit a PR. So, so I, I know a lot of people like to keep hormones at some baseline level, right? So testosterone, obviously keep that, right? I think that's an intelligent thing. We probably would all agree on that, but any other anabolic on top of that, I see, I see potential that some type of fluctuation you can build on that theory of like going one direction and then letting it come off of that. So you can super compensate the other direction and having that like swinging back and forth in there. Well, here's, here's an interesting question. Here's an interesting like scenario and I'm going to make it do it with SARMs just because I can do the numbers real easy. So it's kind of like similar. So, do you think that someone would get more gains from taking one milligram of rad 140 a day or from taking 365 milligrams, let's say over like an eight week period? Like they trained for the full year, but one person did an eight week cycle at 365 milligrams. The other person took one milligram per day. I have, I have an answer already, but I, Dave, yeah. what are your thoughts? One per day, a hundred percent. Yeah. I was saying one per day. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so, but, but during but during that for so for the last like three years, I only do five days on and the two days off with SARMs, and so I see I've been able to get up to two two. So you remember when you're talking about the equilibrium and the hypercompensation? That's actually where I was going with this. So there is a hypercompensation point with hormones. For instance, a lot of guys cut out testosterone when they're going into peak week, right? And when they cut that out, sometimes two weeks out, right? You get the hyper-responsive effect on estrogen, right? So you can actually do the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish. Okay, and then so, you're jamming. So, so, so explain, explain the hyper, the, the, the effect with estrogen. So, so somebody's coming up to a show, they don't want to, they, they think that they're going to hold too much sub Q water or whatever. So they're like, I'm going to switch from cypionate to propionate. I'm going to switch from cypionate to just testosterone by itself. And I'll just do an injection every fucking day. Right. Or just drop it completely. So what is your thought process? So you're saying that dropping that it, you can actually have a, a rise in estrogen. I just want to make sure I don't understand. Yes. Because the body loses that homeostasis point. It can increase estrogen by coming off testosterone. That's why guys get gynecomastia when they come off testosterone and they don't PCT. It's not just because their estrogen levels are there's that a weird equilibrium and a hypercompensation that is they're trying to happen. It doesn't happen to everyone, right? And like everyone's super bio-individual, and every single time that you would do it, it'd be different. But yeah, you're reducing down the aromatization, you're taking drugs to knock aromatization down, but the body is still trying to produce. So it loses the testosterone, but it doesn't lose the estrogenic side effects. So it can have that adverse side effects. So just, just food for thought, that equilibrium, it's all about the equilibrium. The body's trying to find it. It's confused because it's probably thinking that it's still getting testosterone or something like that. It, it can happen. So, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting conversation. I, I like it's, you know, I've been thinking about doing, there's a study on LGD, like the sun, right? So they did 76 men. Uh, LGD one milligram per day. Well, they did like 0.1, 0.3, and one milligram per day. And they did it for 20 days. And this, during that 20 days, well, it was 21 days, but one day they didn't take it, right? So 20 days of cycle consumption of compound. And then there was one day in the middle where they were just checking blood work to see half life and stuff. 
And during that time, they gained like 2.6 pounds or 2.7 pounds of lean body mass. And I think of trend as similar to a SARM in that it's extremely um, um, strong. And, and if you look at trend, it is slightly selective in the tissue. So why, I, and then everybody's like, oh, 100, 200, 300 milligrams a week, right? Why not? Because it's, we know more about SARMs. Well, I mean, I know more about SARMs. There's plenty of literature on, on trend, right? And courses and stuff. But why not try dropping that to a microscopic dose? If these guys were taking one milligram of LGD and they added 2.6, 2.7 pounds of lean body mass, I was thinking of like a, a, initially seven milligrams. I don't want to do daily injections. So I was like, okay, maybe I don't want to do the daily injection of trend of one milligram. And that would be like something that nobody's ever heard of, but it's effective with LGD. So like on a milligram per milligram basis, would that, you know what I mean? Like LGD is effective in this study at gaining lean body mass at one milligram. So why wouldn't, if trend is as strong as people say it are, is on a milligram basis, why not take one milligram per day? for five days a week. You know, I mean, I don't know. That was the thought process behind like the microscopic dose on that. Yeah. SARMs are a little bit more potent per milligram per milliliter though, than like, like any androgenic drug. I mean, unless if you're talking about oral steroids, it's a little bit different. It's methylated, but um, yeah, uh, SARMs are really, really selective. That's why their milligram per milliliter. It's so strong in comparison to steroids, injectable steroids, at least. Um, well, here's so, an interesting thing with yeah. the trend. So I think there, there's a trade-off between how fast you can gain muscle and side effects. Everyone wants to go fast. So let's say you took a gram of trend, not at one time. I'm just saying we're using, that's the amount, one gram of trend, right? And you take that over, you know, an eight-week period, right? Now, you know, that's kind of stretched out. Now you want to get bigger faster. You take that same amount in, you know, in, in, in four weeks instead. So you're, I mean, I mean, in my opinion, what I kind of think is like, you know, steroids can be so powerful. I think that just the fact that some of them are in your body at, at really any dosage can help you with gains. Now I'm not saying for bodybuilding and for getting, you know, stage ready that 50 milligrams of trend is going to get you to the, you know, Olympia or whatever. But I mean, I think, it's a trade-off between how fast you want to put on muscle and how much damage do you want to do to your body. So I think you can spread out a lot of that stuff in lower doses. You know, like for me, I'm on 200 milligrams of test and 100 milligrams of DECA, and I'm putting on a decent amount of muscle, you know, and I'm not on cycle or anything like that. So I don't know. Interesting. What does that sound? That's uh, when I get a new follower. I need to turn that down. I have the volume <laughs> turned up so I can hear you guys. I was like, that is a lot. Um, testing yeah. levels. That was a. It's a very good way. I, I think that you position to that, or like one milligram of red per day versus you know whatever three hundred sixty-five milligrams over over eight weeks. And that was a very interesting way of putting it because yeah, I appreciate you like highlighting it in that way. You know, because it's yeah, a different, like, definitely a different way to think about it. But no one, no one wants to tell you know a seventeen-year-old kid like. Hey, just take your SARM stuff for over 20 weeks, you know, and, and the SARM example is not hundred percent great because you will have suppression. So you don't want to be suppressed all year round. That's kind of why they're running cycles, but it was more of just a parallel to having a little bit in your system all throughout the year 
you know, may get you more gains overall than just blasting for 12 weeks and coming off. It absolutely does because you're going for the protein synthesis increase. And once it's out of your system, you're not getting that protein synthesis increase. And you're getting a lot more drugs in the system that the body has a process. And androgens build over time. That's why titration method is so important because androgens do build in the system. SHGB does rise in the system. But the lower amounts that you can take for a longer period of time without actually saturating that level, those levels, that's a whole holy grail is getting less side effects and more gains over time. And, you know, that, that's a whole theory behind titration. When you're talking about women, for instance, right, a lot of people just jump to 10 milligrams of antibiotics. Boom, in your face, 10 milligrams of Anabar. I'm like, I know women that can barrelize at 10 milligrams of Anabar. The medical dose is 2.5, 5, and 10 for women in particular, right? I'm not talking males. We're not going to barrelize. We're already barrelized. Um, <laughs> so, but if you put a woman on 5 milligrams and they get exactly what you want to out of it, and there's less androgenic buildup, which happens over time, therefore, the barrelization doesn't happen as quick as a rate over a lifetime. So if they're a competitor, why don't you start from at five milligrams of Anabar? You can always titrate up. You don't have to stay at five milligrams. And then on top of it, because there's less androgenic buildup during that time and you get the benefits, the protein synthesis increase over that period of time, you get exactly what you wanted to out of the drug originally anyways. Um, so that's, that's my methodology, at least when it comes to gear, is less is more and you don't get the side effects. And if you look at the guys from the 70s, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they'd run 20... Four week cycles, I believe it was. I think it was twenty four weeks, right? Six then, months, basically. Yeah, six months, and then they take like I think it was a four week break, and then they do it again, but very very <laughs> low amounts. I don't know how they didn't have issues with all the dianabol that they took, but needless to say, um, it, the, and they were they're still they're seventy something years old and still kicking it. They look good. What, what do you so? What do you guys take? Or what are? I had somebody asking me this earlier. Further, without like getting into the drug piece of things, what are some things that people can do to help control and regulate uh, their blood pressure? Because I, I personally believe blood pressure is right. It leads to ED. It leads to kidney disease. Kidney disease. Um, it leads to heart attack. It leads to increased risk of cardiac. Uh, related issues it increases the risk of blindness diabetes you you can go on and on and on and they're all linked to fucking high blood pressure and it's not talked about enough in, and people are like oh i'm only 140 and they'll be like well, 140 right so what are some things that you guys can what like maybe lifestyle but then also like a supplements or whatever that people can do to control that because i think that would be something that we should bring to light more to really highlight for people I've been meaning to look into that more supplements wise for blood pressure. I mean, I would say as a suggestion right off the bat, I mean, lower caffeine and stimulant, you know, uh, you know, amounts could definitely help with that. I mean, I remember when I went into uh, donate blood and I had drinking a little bit of a monster before, but I'm sensitive to caffeine and my blood pressure was high. My heart rate was too high to donate blood and I had to go home. But I don't know you and David probably know more about the supplement side than I do. Um, sure. So I'll jump into it a little bit. So yeah, the adrenal, what he just actually alluded to is the adrenals are actually located on the kidneys. And when you're looking at blood pressure support, you want to look at electrolyte balance. That's the number one thing because electrolytes have a diuretic effect on the body. So that's actually how you can pull someone into a show without putting them on pharmaceutical diuretics. Worst comes to worst, you add some caffeine in there. Caffeine's a diuretic. 
Um, vitamin C has diuretic effects. Magnesium has diuretic effects. There's a lot of things that have diuretic effects. Um, that's why I'm adamant about not using diuretics because I think there's plenty of tools to pull water from a body when you're getting ready for show. Now, as far as overall health goes, I think for kidney supplements, astragalus is an amazing one. Um, they can help with GFR, some, some filtration, uh, ne- nephrogen by morphogen, by the way, that's the best that, to that I've seen with help with GFR. I've seen someone go from a, uh, I think it was like in the fifties, not forties, but fifties, which is so low up to the mid seventies within like less than a month period of time, which is pretty fast. So, so just so, so reference for anybody who's listening, the GFR is like a measure that's calculated by a doctor to gauge kidney function. And what is it below 60 is bad or something like that. I don't remember. So going yeah. to 75 is good. That's a good thing. Yeah. And it's different for black function. and whites, by the way, or, or just black, black, they actually categorize differently. Like if you can have a lower GFR, but it actually in retrospect would be higher. I'm pretty sure. Um, so, so these two, those two supplements you mentioned, um, great for kidney function and as a side effect of improving kidney function, <laughs> blood pressure tends to improve as well. Yeah. As, as long as the, you're getting the filtration properly going through the system with enough, the fundamental key is water. The best supplement for kidney health is water. I don't care what anyone else says, Correct. water, 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 and people do not drink enough water. If you're peeing like funky colors all day every day and that's not your vitamins anymore you're dehydrated that's out <laughs> that could be the release of adactone which actually makes you uptake water when you uptake water because you're peeing out blood well guess what your blood pressure is probably high as well um so you want to get your hematocrit levels and iron levels checked uh get a blood pressure cuff now if you want to talk about pharmacology on the unnatural realm, oh yeah so vitamin c is really good for your kidneys as well um like really good for your kidneys um and adrenals so then uh for a actual medication telmosartan in low dosages can help a ton with people with chronic it has to be chronic right um blood pressure so that is a really good cheap drug um so, but I don't want to really get into pharmacology too much because people are going to get ideas and they're going to start taking like Telmasar and be like, oh, I have high blood pressure. Telmasar. When like, you look at the, the categories, right? You've got like, there's alpha blockers, there's beta blockers, there's calcium channel things, right? And then there's the electrolyte balances and, and things you can do on that front. So like, if somebody has, say, you know, they're ranging from like mid 130s to say, you know, stage, you know, the higher stages of hypertension going through and working on things that are going to affect their liver function, but also their kidney function, like increasing their water consumption. Uh, if you have a diet that is a decent amount of sodium, adding in potassium capsules multiple times per day or every meal, it will help regulate your sodium so you, that the sodium has one potential effect on blood pressure, right? But it doesn't, it's not the all encompassing. It's like, oh, sodium, control that and you're fucking fine. No, <laughs> that's one piece of it, right? Like it's one, so having that, and then you can control that portion of, of that. Is there any like natural um, calcium channel or like beta or alpha blockers? So not off the top of my head, not that I know of, but what I would say for circulatory reasons, uh, dandelion root is phenomenal. Like it actually works better than pharmaceutical diuretics, in my opinion. Um, I mean, besides the people that literally need pharmaceutical diuretics, that's different. But dandelion root is amazing. Like 
probably the best, better than most pharmaceutical diuretics from what mm-hmm. I've seen. Do you, do you prefer tea or do you prefer capsules for the weight? Capsules, you get the dosing right. Um, but tea is like pretty like chill. Um, you can start your day off with it or something like that or drink it midday at lunch. Um, and this is for people that have issues like GFR issues and stuff like that where they can't circulate and they have edema, is- edema issues and stuff like that. Um, where they're just getting like basically like it's almost like water logging, like locking almost is what's going on. Um, that's a good solution. MK677 to a lot of times people carry, they think they carry fluid because of MK677, but in my opinion, a vast majority of it just due to diet and stuff. Adding a dandelion root, super awesome thing to do because it works as like a natural diuretic. If somebody doesn't want to clean up their diet, which most people don't want to do, and they're deciding to research with MK677 or some other type of growth hormone secreted guy that increases fluid retention, adding in, you know, the capsules of dandelion root or adding a dandelion root tea a couple times a day, hmm. fucking super helpful for that shit. <laughs> yeah. So here's, here's maybe a little flip, and I think this is going to take us to the full hour. So obviously, Sean Roden passed away at 46, and then just a few days ago, Callie Muscle put out a video that he had almost a near-fatal heart attack with like 100% blockage on his left ventricle, I believe. I mean, so this has been in the news a lot this year, you know, about bodybuilders, people that use gear dying. Do you guys think it's just there's more people on gear and it's more public? Or do you think that there's something different that was going on now from the 1970s, 80s, when it was a lot more rare? Um you know, what are your guys' thoughts on why are why are these so many people dying in this sport? Is it that is it that they have to get so shredded that they're that they're the organizations and the judges are basically forcing these people to get to go right to the brink of death just to be on stage to be so feathered and cut? Or do you think it's just they're using way too much stuff? They're using different stuff. What are you guys' thoughts? Go ahead, Sam, and then I'll touch on it after you. So I, I think that it has more to do with the macro environment personally, because I haven't looked into there was also George Pierre, right? That was a couple months ago. And then six or seven months ago, I think there was somebody else who passed away. Uh, George Pierre, like the classic physique guy. Um, I think it has far more to do with the macro environment in terms of social media pictures and stories being told. Like when you think about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, first of all, we couldn't do this. Second of all, if somebody died, somebody died and nobody fucking knew about it, but the microcosm of bodybuilding um, online will spread and proliferate that information quick. So there's a lot of that going on. Yes, it could be other stuff, but I just feel like that shit's always been happening. And if you look at the 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 percentage of people who are passing away related to heart attacks or heart-related issues as a percentage of the total population who is bodybuilding versus the total percentage of the population, I don't know. I don't have the data. If you guys have any of the data, please share it. But I don't. I wouldn't personally think that it was actually any higher. If anything, I would think it was lower because people who are into bodybuilding tend, not always, but they tend to have a higher degree of understanding one's health and then dietary intake of calories and how to do things in an intelligent and thoughtful way. We don't have those negative 
impacts. You know what I mean? So I think they just get highlighted because of social media. But I don't know if the degree of it actually happening is greater today than it was back in the day. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Dave? So I'm going to go in a time capsule really fast with you guys in like two seconds. Bodybuilding, though, at a fundamental piece is healthy. It is competing is an extreme. Diet and nutrition is healthy. Going to extremes to get as lean as you are is not healthy for natural or enhanced, period. In fact, if you're on testosterone replacement therapy, it's probably healthier. And I'm probably going to eat my words for that one. We're going to have some trolls on that one. Being on testosterone replacement therapy is healthier than being natural and going into a show. I have seen blood work on natural guys that they come out of the show, and it is horrific. Um, now, let's go into time capsule really fast. 70s. What were the bodybuilders doing back then? They were bodybuilding. They were doing construction working. They were living active lives. And the only recreational drug that they were doing was marijuana. So, and I mean, maybe drinking, I don't really see anything about drinking. I think it was just marijuana for the most part. Like they liked getting high and training and eating, you know, it was, that was bodybuilding. I think fundamental. And they ran gear year round, um, lower amounts than nowadays, but they ran gear year round, needless to say. And they usually quit at earlier ages. Now, let's take time capsule and snapshot forward a little bit. We had Lee Haney reigning for a little while. Um, those guys were relatively similar to the 70s, I believe. I believe that growth hormone came into the equation at that point. And then the 90s, which is the end of Lee Haney, was one insulin factor came into it. Um, I think that the androgenics were relatively already at that threshold right there. I think that was coming. The, the androgens were increasing at this period of time from the late 80s into the early 90s. And then in the mid 90s, they probably stayed relatively the same. And then they started playing the size game because Gates came out of the blue. Um, I'm sure he was running insulin. I don't think he was running a ton of androgenic drugs. I, I assume that he would be at like 600 milligrams of testosterone and then whatever androgens on top of it. I don't know. I haven't heard him ever say a public statement about it, but nothing crazy. Right. And then you had the use of in the US ecstasy was big at the late nine in the in the nineties, huge. And it was big in the bodybuilding community as well. Alcoholism was a thing. Smoking cigarettes was a thing. And these guys were what age? And now they're starting to pass away. We're starting to see slowly but surely. And then you had the early 2000s where ecstasy was still a thing. Um I don't, I don't, I think the alcohol was still a thing and they were still partying pretty hard. Um, and then they get older and older as these snapshots are going on. These bodybuilders are staying in the game. They use in the seventies, they were staying in the game until probably like their early thirties or so. I would, I would assume if I remember correctly. And then they basically stop bodybuilding. They do bodybuilding, but they wouldn't compete anymore. And now we're having guys that Texter Jackson was 51 when he retired, 52 when he retired. Um, Tony Freeman was 49 or something like that. And Tony's healthy. Um, and also Dexter from what I understand. Um, but you have these guys and they're elongating their careers. They're bodybuilding for a longer period of time. They're getting, they can make a career in bodybuilding or were, were able to make a career. There's still money to make in bodybuilding. And, but now you have like, then you have the Ziz generation at 2010 marker or so where it got popularized to go to raves and do all these hallucinogenic drugs and drink alcohol and mix all these drugs and you're on steroids and you're making this concoction. And he was prone to a heart attack because he had a heart condition. He died. And now what I'm seeing is some absorbent amounts. And this kind of ha started happening in the 2000 range, absorbent amounts of gears. 
And I think that we're starting to see some of the long-term side effects of larger dosages being used. I do believe that the health aspect is slowly starting to trickle into the equation again, because people are starting to realize these guys that are in their, that are passing away in their forties. Um, and the other one that you mentioned, by the way, is John Meadows. John Meadows passed away. He had a, actually a blood clotting uh, autoimmune disease that he had, I believe, to remove his colon in 2008. And that was, that was my coach. That was my life mentor. He was like a father to me. Um, and he passed away earlier this year, and I believe it was a pulmonary embolism. So a blood clot went into the heart. That's also what caused the year before. But his calcium score was nil, like he that which was usually caused by steroids, and he didn't have any. Uh, I believe his calcium score was like a zero, if I remember correctly, um, hmm. non-existent. So it was an autoimmune disease that took his life. So, but in twenty, I'm going to do the last one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to hear this in twenty twenty. If you look across the board at all sports, we have guys dying in their 20s of blood clots. And I'm not going to say the correlation there or 2021, not 2020, 2021. We have guys in their 20s that are soccer players and 30s that are dying of blood clots. How are soccer players dying of blood clots? But you're talking about something else. No, no, no. But I, I just want to say that these are just correlations that we're, I'm kind of seeing and the yeah. trend. So yeah. th- some of the stuff has changed. They, they take steroids for longer amounts of times. There are a lot of recreational drug use. Um, not all the bodybuilders were doing it, but a lot of them, I believe, were doing it. Um, like they would get drunk after the show. Shoot, Ronnie Coleman won his first Olympia when Kevin LeBron went to his room. Did you see that documentary? Kevin LeBron went to his room, and I think He's they had pizza shots. and alcohol, and like they just got drunk together, and they showed up peeled on stage and won the Olympia. <laughs> um, Gee, from, I thought yeah. it was interesting. A couple of things that you said. So you know, we're seeing someone who's, who died at forty six, like Sean Roden, but he did the damage to his body. You know, twenty, you know, ten, twenty years ago, and then maybe that's what happened now. And I see you also touched on a really interesting point, and this goes back to Cali Muscle. Two points actually. Cali Muscle is forty-six years old. He's freaking jacked. He doesn't even compete. He, the reason he stays that big and takes all the stuff that he does is just for social media. No one wants to see, and I'm sure, I'm sure people would still watch his stuff if he did get smaller. But in his head, people want to see Jack shredded Cali muscle, so he's going to run whatever he needs to to stay that size for his social media. Now, here's another thing about Cali muscle. He was talking about how he had kind of edema uh, and a lot of water weight that was put uh, pop up in his ankles and his feet. But and his doctors would talk to him about heart stuff, but he didn't want to hear it. And I think a lot of these bodybuilders run into that as well. You know. Let's say you're you're four weeks out from a show, and this is your big show. This is your career. This is what makes you money. This is what can get you sponsorships. And the doctor says, bro, your blood pressure's through the roof. Your lipids are down. You're having this. And they're like, fuck it. I'm four more weeks, and then I can chill. Then I'll take care of my health. You're, I think you, that's a really good point. Like I had this a gentleman who they, people just come talk to you in the gym when you're in shape, right? And they'll ask questions. And so I had this gentleman, and he's, he's around 60 years old, and he's running 750 milligrams of test a week, doesn't compete, doesn't look like he competes, looks like a normal dude. And the I think that I definitely have a biased opinion because I pay attention to health and I pay attention to what I put in my body, but there's a tremendous portion of the population, just like in general, who does not pay attention to their health. It doesn't matter that they're in bodybuilding and they just don't do the necessary steps to 
take care of, whether it's your blood pressure, you realize your, your kidney function is getting worse and worse and worse. Your liver enzymes have been elevated for fucking three years and you wonder why you have liver failure or other things. And what you were saying, Dave, that's a really good point because you have, if, if somebody is taking something for a longer period of time, you have that happening, right? You're taking drugs for, you know, 27 years or 37 years versus, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, right? So the, the duration is a lot longer. But then also what happens just naturally to humans as they age? Less resilience. So I thought that was a really good point. They need to be like the, the nuance up there of like you're far less, less resilient at 46 years old than you are at, say, 31 years old or 29 years old. Big difference, even though oh, it's only 15 years, but there's a big difference. And you know, one other thing is our, uh, our, our food system has completely changed. Our food system is trash compared to what it used to be. So you want to talk about cholesterol buildup and plaque buildup and all that stuff just from the food alone that we're surrounded by. I mean, we have small businesses going out within the last year. I'm just saying within the last year uh, because of everything that transpired and more and more fast food restaurants popping up. Um, the, and back when they were doing the uh, in California, they literally had a meal called the bodybuilder that they would go and they would smoke weed and then they would eat that meal. Right. And but it was like basically home cooked, like breakfast food in the restaurant. And it was probably farm to table kind of thing. Now, farm to table, like you're paying extra for like and you need to find a place. And it's, it's, it's going to be like one out of 10 or one out of 15 restaurants before you can even find somebody who does farm to table kind of thing. You were about to say something, Tester Lowe's? Yeah, so I watched uh, the video that Greg Doucette did on, I believe it was Sean Roden or someone else. And basically his thought process, and I kind of agreed with this, that the way to to make bodybuilding somewhat safer, at least you know near competition, is to have more weight classes. So when you go from, I don't know the all the things, but I think it was like you, for one thing, you have to go from like 215 to like two 235 or something like that. And he was saying that, that that jump from when you first become a professional to be able to jump 30 or 25 or 30 pounds, that takes a lot of, a lot of stuff. And they were, he was saying if, if you could only, only had to jump up 15 pounds, you know, you're using less stuff. So he's, his thought was to make more classes. I thought that was a pretty good idea. I still have an open class, but I thought that was interesting. Have more weight classes so someone someone like uh, Keon can say, okay, well, I want to compete at this. Or maybe I want to drop down 15 pounds uh, you know, and, and compete at 200 or something like that instead of having to make these massive you know, 30-pound jumps. Now, I'm going to disagree with that statement due to the fact that we have classic now and there are different height classes by – or different height weight classes by height. So if you don't fall into uh, some type of bodybuilding or you don't want to get that big, you can fall into it. They have a 212 class now, which usually you kind of transpire into 212 naturally if you just outgrow classic. And then you also have open bodybuilding, which some people have the genetics just for open body, like they're just going to go into open bodybuilding. Some people abuse stuff to get into open bodybuilding to fill out their frame, which I personally don't agree with. I mean, well, I mean, who, people are going to live their lives how they're going to want to live their lives. Um, I personally would not do it. It's just not what I would want to do. Um, I have a big frame. I have a lot to fill out and I'm going to let it fill out over time and fall where I fall, which I can still fall into classic physique. Um, in fact, this year I kind of almost downsized without trying to just because I haven't been able to bodybuild really. And it's going to benefit me when I have to go into a show. I may not even try to grow and just come into a show and see how I look and let my body kind of grow into a pro level because you get an extra 10 pounds from amateur to pro at classic. 
Now you can do, and then in, in bodybuilding at amateur level, this is what probably what he's referring to is just kind of shift that into the, uh, um, the bodybuilding world, the pro world is you have a bunch of different weight classes. You have like welterweight, you have middleweight, you have light, light heavyweight, uh, then you have uh, heavyweight and then you have super heavyweight. So there's a bunch of different classes. So I understand what he, where he's going with it, but I feel like there's a place for everyone now with classic coming into the mix before that. And when it was two twelve and open, I completely agree with that because you'd have to do wear board shorts and do physique. Not. It's, it's interesting because classic has just exploded. I do. I do see that though, because there's guys who don't want to do classic and in in their minds, just like a lot of people don't take care of their health in their minds, and, and this is a probably a tiny fucking percentage of the people who actually compete, but who are like, oh well, I need to compete at 250 to 60 to be there. And and psychologically for them, they are like, oh, I need to take a lot more shit because the top five guys are in the two. 45 to 275 range, 285 in that range. So they're like, even to be in the realm, I need to be in that category. And I'm sure there's a small subset of people where if, if they did do something in a different category, could be very beneficial for that subset of people who just like has that psychological thing. Like I need to be fucking bigger to compete at like the top six level kind of thing. Yeah, you, I think, I think it would, if they, maybe if they had some more classes and I'm not big into the bodybuilding world, you'd have more champions so you have more like sponsorship and I think there'd be a lot more news into, okay, well, this person's dropping down into this and now they're a front runner in this and this person's first year jumping up to this class. It'll be interesting to see how he competes. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. What Greg said, it made sense to me, but I don't know the bodybuilding stuff. So um, let me challenge you with other sports are really fast. There's different leagues of football, right? But, Besides the NCAA and NFL, do you know any other teams? I don't know one player on the. I don't even know a name of the other teams. Um, so it, they, same you. thing would transpire. It would eventually. I think it would wash it out a little bit because we already have like we, we have a few classes. We have you're four right. different classes for bodybuilding, and you're gonna fall into one. Let your body fall where it needs to fall, and then even like in the women's side, like. If you're just more muscularly dense, like if you're a bikini, then you're a bikini. If you're more muscularly dense on the lower body, you have the wellness division now. Before, you got docked and figure for having too big of legs. So now you have a division for you. So there's literally a division for males and females on all sides of the board, in my personal opinion. You, you, um, need, you need like that gold standard. You need like the pinnacle, I feel like, to without it being completely to like – because I, I don't know of any other league. I mean, I don't pay attention to sports, but yeah. Like, I, I feel like having the pinnacle to point at for an organization, I think is is valuable thing. I do agree with that. Yeah. So definitely an interesting topic. I think we're going to wrap this up because we're going to try to do three episodes and we've got three hours of hosting for this month. But um, I want to pose an interesting just question that we'll cover next one. So to make bodybuilding safer, should they focus less on conditioning and being just so dry and dehydrated and maybe focus more on symmetry? I don't know. We'll talk about that next time. But anyway, guys, you can find us on social media, YouTube, Dynamite D on Instagram. Look up David DeMasquito on YouTube. Look up Sam Solt on Instagram and YouTube. You can find me on YouTube and Instagram as well. Test your levels. So you guys are awesome. I thought this was a really good show, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. 
Yes, thank you, everybody who's listening. And uh, if you enjoy the show, leave us a comment and or share this with somebody else. It really helps out uh, the channel uh, and the podcast grow. So we would appreciate it. See you on the next episode.